Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Superstition is an incredible artist, one when you take the time to listen to his music or read interviews, you can learn a lot from. With that, Superstition, I want to welcome you to the Library with Tim Monaco. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to finally speak with you, brother. You as well, man. Uh, so, you know, you grew up in uh, Greenville, North Carolina, and um, you know, I read an interview where you were talking about how you remember, as a kid, uh, the KKK walking through your town. <laughs> Um, which is crazy to you know crazy to think like you're just this 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 obviously this group this 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 hate filled group is you know allowed to do that or just does it. Um, what was the immediate impact for you as a child? Like, what did you when you saw that? What did you think? And then also, kind of, how do you think that helped you shape your? I mean, this image of hate, right? Uh, shape yourself as as an artist or as a future artist. Um, well, I could say because I grew up in like you said, I grew up in Greenville, North Carolina, which is a small town. What it's a smaller town. I, you know, it's not like it's a village or anything, but it's a smaller town on the eastern part of North Carolina, about 45 minutes to an hour away from Raleigh. Um, and, you know, we just growing up, my family, you know, it was, it was almost an unspoken thing that we knew there were certain places that we didn't go, certain people we didn't talk to. Um, you know, I grew up in, you know, going to school and, I've, I, you know, I remember getting suspended from, you know, from a white kid calling me the N word in school, you know, and, wow. um, you know, I remember watching the Klan march and really not truly understanding it. But the memory never left because I asked my mom what's going on here. And she was just like, you know, she just basically said, like, you know, these people, they don't they don't like black people. They don't like anybody other than white people. And back then I was so young, it was hard to process. But it's one of those things that never went away. And I remember being older and learning about the Klan. And that's the first thing that popped out in my head. And then um, I remember seeing some pictures of my hometown, maybe 20, 30 years before I was born and watching, you know, like these symbols of the Klan, there were signs and things like that too. And it just, it kind of brought me back and just, you know, a lot of times when we grew up in North Carolina, we knew we were in the South, but it didn't always feel like we were in the South because we weren't, you know, Georgia or Mississippi or Louisiana or anything like that, you know, but we, we got daily reminders sometimes depending on where you lived and life, uh, you know, in a small city can be a lot different than life in, in a big city, you know, cause I've, you know, I spent 20 plus years in Greenville, North Carolina, and I ended up moving to Charlotte later on. And Charlotte's completely different. I mean, this, you still got your, you know, racism there, but it's a different type. 
you know, and being that it's the largest city in North Carolina, but Greenville was a, a little bit different. I, I've had a lot of incidents with that, man. And it, um, you know, it made me when I, when I became older, because both of my parents were in the, um, in the national guard military. So they did get to travel a little bit, but it made me realize that when I got older, I didn't want to just be in Greenville. I wanted to see more of the world. Um, because you know, my wife, my wife is Asian. So the first time I brought her home to Greenville, North Carolina, and you, you know, we're talking about a black fr- family from a small town. Just imagine the culture shock that they felt, <laughs> you know, right. Remember, right. And my wife's from Laos and my granddaddy, you know, first thing he said to me was, um, you know, wow, she's from Japan. I'm like, she's not from Japan. I guess he was referring to Asia, but you know, it's one of those right. things, you know, small town, small, you know, small mentality sometimes. So, so, so I mean, with, with, with that, like, what is the, I mean, what is, I, where did, I guess, where does hip hop come to play? Like, where is that? When did, when did you start, or what did you start using to, you know, we all try to find a way to escape, right? Our reality. Right. Um, what was, what were you, you, what would you start doing, I guess, to kind of, kind of, get your mind off of that or get kind of, or, or think bigger or think, you know, big, I guess, bigger, bigger city or, you know, different dimness. Uh, what I would say, you know, first of all, um, I used to hear hip hop in the early years and, and this is like the Grandmaster Flash and, and Sugar Hill Gang and things like that. And it didn't really gr- grab me because it's what my, you know, my mother and my aunts and my uncles used to listen to. And I remember seeing the album covers and looking at the album covers saying, these look just like the R&B and disco guys. Like they dressed exactly mm-hmm. the same. They had leather pants and feathers and all these things. And so it didn't really hit me at that time, even though I knew some of the songs, it didn't hit me as hip hop. I was actually into more rock because I was an MTV kid. So I used to sit in front of the TV every day and watch just rock videos and things like that. So the day that um, hip hop really hit me was when I saw Run DMC's video for, I remember watching, you know, watching that on MTV and just kind of being blown away. But my earliest memories of hip hop came from my, I had two older cousins, Sean and Marvin. And to me, they were the cool cousins. They were hip. They, you know, they dress cool. I got all my style, my fashion and everything from them because basically I would get their hand-me-downs and their clothes. And they used to get these tapes from New York that they would play because, you know, there was a lot of people that were transplants from New York that lived in North Carolina. And I remember them used to they used to play tapes of Red Alert and and Mr. Magic and Marley Mall and things like that. And they used to play it over and over. But at that time, you know, I didn't have a visual for it. I just knew that you know, this is what they wanted to do. So one time when I went to my, um, my cousin's house, they had this idea that, you know, they was like, let's record a rap song. And I'm like, all right, cool. So we, we didn't have much. All we had was a, a huge stereo receiver, uh, probably a radio shack mic. <laughs> and we also had the, uh, the flat desktop recorders that the teachers used to use back in the day. And so we put on a uh, Dougie fresh instrumental. We all wrote a rhyme and we just we just ran down the line. And I remember I was the last one on the song and I just started rhyming and stumbled over my words, forgot it, started freestyling, ended up dissing my cousin. He got angry. So, <laughs> so but I had so much fun doing it. And then when I went back home, I couldn't wait to go back to my cousin's house because I didn't have the equipment to do it. So next time I came to my cousin's house, I was like, hey, let's record another song. They were like, oh, no, nah, it was one time thing, man. <laughs> Ever since that day, I have never stopped writing. And I was 
nine years old when that happened and i haven't stopped writing so so then who do you oh, so so nine years old you're writing uh who are you i guess maybe besides your cousins but who are you bouncing or maybe practicing your your rhymes with or bouncing your rhymes off of to kind of or, or you know to to try to constantly improve yourself right as a as an artist i mean who who's that person you're going to or group of people you're going to so here's the crazy part because i'm an only child there was nobody there. So I spent about four or five years or maybe more just writing and rapping to myself. The only people that would hear it would probably be my mom and dad or my cousins or something like that. It was a whole it was a family thing that they knew about it and nobody knew about it. And until one time I built up enough courage, I had a classmate, Matthew Ward. He went by the name of DJ Matt Money. He was one of the most popular DJs in town. He was a, you know, teenage kid. And I remember talking to him and he was like, you know, you rap. I was like, yeah, you know, I, I rap. And I don't know how we found out and I ended up rapping for him. And he was just blown away because at the time I hadn't bounced it off anybody. I didn't know if I, if I was terrible because <laughs> back then I was so afraid of being garbage. You know, that's the one thing you didn't want to do. Cause I used to see people get beat up or thrown off stage or, you know, things thrown at you. So Matt found out about it and went around the school bragging like, Hey, my boy, Cam, he could take anybody. And I was like, what? So, so this one kid, Donald came up and Donald was like, Yo, I'll battle him. And so there was like, you know, back, back then there was like, yeah, you the new Jack. So you go first. And I remember getting about eight bars in and the dude was literally like, I quit. I'm done. <laughs> nice. And I was like, what? Now, you know, the kids start going crazy. Like, ah, ah, and I was like, okay. That's when I realized that I actually had something. And I think I was a lot better than some other kids who just kind of joked around with it. Like me had at that time being able to, you know, rapping for five or six years, I was almost, you know, I was way more seasoned than a lot of kids back then. So. So when did you start, uh, I guess, you know, not, not to school, but when did you start pe- performing uh, in front of people? I mean, you know, like a, an audience, I guess, like maybe even a, a paid audience or a contest. Or when did you start doing that? Um, and then how did you know? And then what was, that, what was the moment then that said, all right, this is, I'm going to push to make a, you know, an album? Right. Um, just, you know, back then, it, we didn't have a lot of shows and performances that happened back then talent shows were really the thing that we had or, you know, schools right. have pep rallies and things like that. Cause I lived in such a small town. So a lot of people didn't really come to Greenville to, to perform. They'd go to Raleigh. So, but I would, you know, have different events. I would say when I finally realized it was um, probably either close to the time I graduated from high school or shortly after that. And when I started hanging around with the crew um, called grassroots organization out of Greenville and they were, um, basically a hip hop crew in at East Carolina University. And they used to throw these parties and throw these shows. And we basically would perform every Monday night at a place called Peasants. It was almost like our our uh, lyricist lounge, if you would say. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was myself. It was uh, DJ Merlin. Rest in peace. It was a lot of different people from there. And we would just go in and just perform all the time. And it just Help me build, you know, just build on my stage presence. Um, you know, at that time, at the same crew, I would go in and they would kind of help me, you know, show me how to record. They would also show me how to network and things like that. So mainly one guy named Chalk that was out of the crew, he taught me 
so much, man. He didn't teach me how to rhyme, but he just taught me how to, you know, you could do this different or, you know, when you, you got to start thinking about a logo or start branding and things like that. And that's when it really hit me. And I actually had my very first contract as a teenager. Um, I signed with low key records, which was a, a label out of Queens that was um, ran by pioneer David DMX, one for the treble. If you remember him. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was my first contract. I mean, it's a horrible contract, <laughs> but you know, it was my first time, um, you know, I'd signed up crazy deal. It was like five albums. Uh, you know, they owned everything. I didn't get an advance or anything like that. So it was just one of those things. But at that time I was from Greenville, North Carolina and there weren't a lot of opportunities. So I felt like, you know, maybe I could just take one for the team. And if this works out, you know, so, you know, maybe it'll, you know, be what, what I want it to be. So, and then, you know, 2002, your, your debut album dropped seven years of bad luck, uh, you know, which is a title referring to bad luck of yours, you know, your, your own bad luck. Um, uh, you know, we talk about bad luck and you talk about music and you talk about, um, you know, I think it's like so easy to give up. Right. Right. Um, how did you not let this bad luck kind of discourage you from pursuing, you know, at least getting to a a debut album. And then what was some of that bad luck that you were just running into? Right. For me at that time, um, music was really the only thing that I had. Um, you know, you know, a lot of times I couldn't find a job because, If you just go back to not even just bad luck, you know, as I look back on it, it was just bad decision making because, you know, a lot of things that people did to me, I allowed them to do that to me. So but, um, you know, I was a teenage father. I I became a father at the age of 16 in a small town. So being in high school, people looked at you like you had the scarlet letter. you almost, you know. So, you know, that complicated things a lot. And instead of being able to just go to college like I, I wanted to, you know, my parents were like, you got to go to work. You got to take care of your kid and things like that. So you know, I I had a kid at 16. Uh, my first marriage, a lot of people don't know about that. But my first marriage was I was almost 20 years old. And wow. so bef- even before my debut album, I had a kid. I had already learned what marriage was. I'd learned what divorce was. It was so many different things. I've gone through multiple producers. Uh, the, my first producer from, you know, I've mentioned like grassroots, he had gotten saved and he didn't want to do secular music anymore, which kind of left me in the middle of a contract without a producer. Then I found another producer and, you know, I was just going from person to person. So around this time, seven years of bad luck, which was an album that, you know, I produced half of that album. I just used a different name of you know sar- sarcastic as a producer name, but you know, it was, I had so much trouble just trying to to finish this album. You know, it's just like yeah. dude, I've got the opportunity. Now everything's falling apart for me, you know, and that's what the cover is reflective of. Just if you look at the broken mirror on the front of it, it's just it's it's me falling apart. So um I basically taught myself how to make beats back then. Um I hooked up with Fresh Chess Records and you know that led to seven years of bad luck. Uh, which was initially supposed to be a hip hop and drum and bass album, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, you know, we, you know, the producer that I was working with at the time was, was, you know, taking this time, getting everything done. So we, it just turned out to be um, just straight hip hop. The title, you know, the title is, um, you know, seems like it came after, way after the album was created. Cause you know, if it was a creator right away. You wouldn't have made seven years bad luck. Right. Uh, so, with that approach to an album, um, 
how how were you i guess how were you with and everything that was happening to you how were you changing maybe song selections or writing process to kind of maybe reflect uh more what the album was the title was about versus what it would have been if it was just a straight like hey you have a year to record this i recorded a year and everything went fine yeah well i didn't even name it seven years of bad luck at the time of i was recording it um, it was just at that time I was going through a lot and that's what I was writing about. Um, okay. especially like a song like mixed emotions, which, you know, which is a true song, uh, probably the one song I probably regret ever writing in my, in my catalog because my daughter got older and, you know, that song's about what I went through with her mother, you know, and I have a 27 year old daughter now who, you know, and I remember her coming to me saying, you know, why'd you write this song about my mother? And one thing I had to realize was that no matter what a person has done, that's always going to be your mother. You know, it's like, you know, your mother could, could do a bunch of things to you ruin your life or whatever but nobody else should be able to talk to you know talk about it like that so um you know i was just going through a lot of things at that time um the waiting period was a song that it originally had a a different beat but you know that beat was taken away i started working with one of my close friends and you know childhood friends hood music who produced that so it was just a lot that i was going through at that time and Towards the end of it, I, I started realizing, yeah, I wanted to call it just seven years of bad luck. And I think seven years of bad luck was pretty much seven years from the time that, you know, I had my my first real life experience or challenge. And that was the birth of my, you know, my daughter. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think what's amazing is that, and, I, and uh, you know, you, you, we talk on this podcast about uh, the quote unquote underrated artists, right? And the benefits and the drawbacks of it. And it feels like a lot of, what when people are called underrated they're they 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 embrace it um because it, it says a lot and i think also the nice thing about it being a quote-unquote underrated artist is that your you know your 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 career long you know you have more longevity i think in in this music um do you i mean do you embrace that uh, title i mean uh as being a quote-unquote under, underrated artist and if you do i mean what are what have what have been those benefits for you uh, with that title or, you know, or, or, or do you think there's drawbacks to that as well? Um, you know, I'm conflicted on that because like sometimes I do feel like I'm underrated, but other times I, I have a firm belief that people, you get what you, what you deserve and your journey may not be somebody else's journey. So maybe I wasn't put on this earth to be the most popular rapper. Maybe I wasn't put on this earth to be as popular as some of my colleagues, but, uh, when I look back at it, I say when I stepped into this game, I came from a small town of Greenville, North Carolina. All I wanted to do was make one album. That was my dream. But here I am years later. I've done multiple albums. I've been to what uh, 30, uh, 13 countries, 14 countries, you know, 36 cities. I've I've done songs with some of my favorite MCs and some of my favorite producers, you know, I've had songs played by DJ Premier, Beatliners, different things like that. So it's like, you know, I feel like I'm underrated, but at the same time, by me saying I'm underrated is almost, I feel like I'm not being grateful or thankful for everything that I've had because I never felt like I was supposed to go this far, but I made it this far. So, at you know, while some people may say I'm underrated because you know, I may not have done as much as some of my counterparts. I'm completely fine with that. You know, 
But, uh, you know, at the same time, you've got an artist like Black Thought that everybody says underrated, but Black Thought has Grammys. He's world renowned. So, you know, underrated is subjective, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I want to talk about, uh, I think in 2004, I think you made, I think, one of the, well, the track that stays relevant to today and I think it, it could be up there with with a lot of the best out there and I think when you created um, the Williams I wish that I could have a second chance second chance take it all away and just call it a day but I got bills problems all in my way what more can I say I got the Williams I wish that I can have a second chance second chance take it all away and just call it a day but I got bills problems all in my way what more can I say I got the Williams all my life they told me save your money for a rainy day but I know it's in the bond things to take the pain away from the bills that I can't afford permanent credit reports the rent that I turned in the landlord said it was short staring at a stack of past due bills wishing I could repossess my uh, it's just an, an amazing it's a track that I remember in 2004 right listening to the okay player you know um that album and that would be the uh, song i would always start with yes um walking through and so i think it's just this a track that i've always wanted to ask you about so i feel like i should uh how did how did this collaboration come together and like i mean you just sound so and i think you do this in a lot of your music but you just it just sounds so effort effortlessly you know you like you just kind of it sounds like it's from the heart. It, you know, that's what I think is amazing about what you do. Um, so, how did the collaboration come together? How did the track come together? And kind of, did you, did you, you know, collaborating with OK Player Records and Questlove is, a, I think, a huge deal in my, you know, uh, what were that? What were the kind of the benefits for you after this album, this track came out? So, I first started working with Nicolay when I, I noticed he was doing a lot of tracks for Little Brother at that time. I'd known. Little Brother through uh, their manager, Big Doe, which was a longtime friend of mine. Um, you know, of course, Fonte and Pooh, you know, we're all close. We're all like brothers. Um, and I'd start working with Nicolay and found out he's from the Netherlands. We've done multiple tracks. And so I, the Williams was originally supposed to be on Chain Letters. And at that time, I was putting the record together. And uh, Fonte came to me and he said, listen, um, he was like, yeah, you know about OK Player? I'm like, yeah, you know, I was on the OK Player boards and all that. And he said, well, look, they're having this uh, contest where they would submit some songs in. And he was like, I'll tell you right now, like, man, they've got some some pretty garbage songs. You know, there's no disrespect to anybody else. But he was like, there's some good stuff. And then they've got a lot of bad stuff. But he was like, yo, I think you should submit this, um, the Williams track. I was like, all right, that's, that's cool with me. You know, I was like, no, I never want anything in my life, man. So, <laughs> so, uh, sent the track in and heard back a little bit later that it was chosen to be on the project, you know, and I was blown away. Like, whoa, like just that validation from, you know, okay player and quest love and things like that. Um, and to me, that's when the tide really started turning, especially after coming off of, um, you know, seven years of bad luck, you know, and, and, and going into at that time, uh, you know, the deadline as well that I was working on. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people in my, you know, at that time I was living in Charlotte, I think a lot of people in North Carolina really started to look at me differently and kind of take me serious. Sometimes it takes that cosign. Uh, the best thing that I would say that came out of, um, the Williams is that they were doing the okay player tour and I got a call and they were saying, look, Quest Love wants you to perform on stage. And I was like, all right, cool. And he was like, no, no, I'm, we're talking about with the roots on stage. And so 
they came um, during the OK Player Tour to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I, I'll never forget, I think it was City Fest. And um, <laughs> they were playing after the Bar Case, which is crazy to me. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, I got there. I met everybody. I was on the tour bus. I met Questlove, Black Thought. Um, Gene Gray, who was there, which I, you know, I met Gene Gray way back because I was really tight with Pumpkinhead um, back in it, you know, early in 1997, 98 and things like that. Um, I'm at Skills. So they had a show and they brought me out on stage to just rock a verse with uh, it was me, Skills and Truck North and in the roots. And, you know, it was just an amazing thing. Like I just. After that, I realized, like, all right, I mean, I might have something here. <laughs> you know, there is opportunity here. Uh, so what was the, for you, uh, when you got back after this, you know, 2004, it happens, um, the Williams, you know, you know, this, this, the Williams happens. What is your, what, for you, what was your next move? Uh, you know, what, what were your, your next moves in terms of like, what album did you want to make out uh, or make? What, what did you want to, what do you want to do then? Well, I, at that time, like I was in the middle of recording Chain Letters and I was pretty much almost done with it. But we actually missed the deadline to turn in Chain Letters. So <laughs> there was like, we're going to miss this. But if you can throw some songs together, then we can just put out a project. And that's where the deadline, the actual EP or the album came in. It was a bunch of just leftover songs from Chain Letters or unreleased songs that I had. And, you know, Soul Spasm came to me and said, look, we can put this out. If you can throw some songs together, we'll get this out and we can just put it out as kind of a, a teaser to chain letters. And we put out the deadline and that record took off like it got me international acclaim. And then with chain letters, you know, dropping shortly after it, I was able to just tour the world. And, you know, being that I've worked with a lot of international producers such as M phases, uh, day, a lot of different people like that. And you know, ill mind. He's from here, you know, but, um, you know, it just, it led to so much opportunity, man. So, you know, you mentioned the name cam before, uh, when for high school and, and, and it seems like, uh, then you went with, uh, uh, superstition. Right. Uh, but then in 2008, we're introduced to, uh, cam Moye or Moy. Right. Right. Um, so who, who was, who was, is he, and why did you, why the, why the name change? Well, like, you know, because my birth name already is, you know, well, my birth name is Kamar Fillmore, but, you know, a lot of people call me Cam because people butcher my first name. So um, I think with when I was doing the Cam Moore project, I had grown tired of just doing superstition music. Um, I had went through I had had a, a car accident like a, it was to me, it was life altering. I saw my life flash before me and I started thinking, man, if I left, you know, this world that day. I wouldn't have been happy with a lot of things that I've done. I didn't really use my voice to put out positive music or I didn't use my platform properly and things like that. So what I wanted to do was just create an alias. And I was like, well, instead of just creating a whole nother rap name, I wanted to make my real name my alias because I felt like the world knew me as superstition. So I had this this idea of doing it. I put out this self-centered project that did really well. And then I was approached by a label was Mixed Music. And they offered me one of the biggest record deals that I'd ever been offered. 
But the catch was they said, well, Cam Moore doesn't have any retail history. Superstition has retail history. So your name is going to have to be Cam Moore, a.k.a. Superstition, on everything that you do. And I'm like, nah, I don't think this is going to work. You know, (laughs) the music that I was making was a little bit different from Superstition. But at the same time, I didn't feel popular as Superstition. So I was like, you know, who gives a fuck? Like, nobody buys my records anyway. So... I changed my name. Well, I changed my name to Cam Moy for a project just to do that. And I just got so much pushback from it. And I'm, you know, it's almost like, you know, somebody had to explain to me, look, if there's a statue in your city that you pass by every day and you ignore it every day, it could be an old rundown statue. Nobody pays it any attention. The day that they take that statue down is the day that they're going to have a problem. And that's what I felt like happened when I tried to leave superstition behind. Everybody's like, well, no, 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 no. Like, no, we want superstition. We don't want that. And what I realized, you know, and I was trying to explain to people, look, the Big Mac is still the Big Mac if you change the name. But, you know, that's not how (laughs) hip hop fans see it. They don't, you know, a lot of times they don't respond well to change, not for some artists. So, but just with the Camoy projects, I I just wanted to do something a little bit more, uh, more positive and also things a little bit more mature. Because when I go back and listen to a lot of my records, you know, even though it's just rap and it's just bars and punchlines, like I, I felt like I've said a lot of disrespectful things as I got a little bit older and I started to realize. And it, it, as you become more cultured, you realize, man, I shouldn't have said this. You know, this is about overweight people or this is about, you know, just a, another ethnicity and things like that. So as I started growing older, I started being a little bit more mindful of. it. So and that was just, you know. And at the time, too, I was um, I was going through a heavy, heavy, heavy depression um, around the time, especially like splitting the image, the Cam Moy album, which is really the main reason why I stepped away from music. If a lot of people remember, like they, you know, they said I retired. I didn't retire. I just quit. I was like, I'm done. It was just, you know, I remember when splitting the image got released. And like I said, it was the, you know, the biggest budget I'd ever have. But I realized when I started doing that record, everybody when you get a budget, everybody wants to be paid. Even people that you've done like 10 things for for free, now all of a sudden. So it's like if I've given a, a producer 10 verses for their projects, now that I've got a budget, they're like, all right, I need $3,000 for this beat. So yeah, for every, course, yeah. every single thing. So at the end, like I went through the entire budget. I had nothing left over for myself. So I remember the day the album came out, I was getting evicted from my house. And it was like, this is the the most surreal thing, like craziest thing I could ever imagine. And, you know, like I said, I was just going through a heavy depression and I just felt like, you know, my marriage was, was, was spiraling out of control because, you know, it was just a lot of things, you know, she's just, she had to deal with a lot of just a lot of emotional, just outbursts and just dealing with me constantly being away. And then, you know, my relationship with my oldest daughter became strained. So at that time I just had to, I had to say, fuck it. I had to put everything aside and get my life together, man. And I ask you about that, I mean, because you, because it's, it's not, I mean, interesting as a fan that you're, you know, you're talking about at this time that you're, you're dealing with heavy depression. And then you, if you, I don't know if you remember these lyrics, but if you go back to 2009 and you're featured on um, DJ JS1's Ground Original 2. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the track uh, Too Easy featuring Pack FM. And, you know, the opening lyrics by you, which I'm going to destroy right now, but I will try not to. Um, it's you, right? Every time you hear me rhyme, your eyebrow goes up. 
your confidence goes down and the crowd goes nuts. Listen, you ain't seen this much screaming and recklessness seen since the debut screening, screening of the, of the Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, so this is like, and I know hip hop is like, you know, lyrics, uh, of course, and your opening is about, you know, exuding confidence, bolstering as much as you can, right? Yeah. Uh, but you're obviously at this time, you know, you're suppressing your, you know, your, your real emotions. Right. Um, how do you, how do you do that? I mean, how do you like, how do you not just say, fuck it, I'm going to write about my depression and maybe this will share with my fans, but also maybe this could be a good way of a therapy for me, you know? Right. For me, it was therapy, but superstition became an escape from reality. And I had to learn early and a lot of artists still go through this. They think because you write a song, it's therapy, but it doesn't solve the problem. You, right. can have, you can have marital problems or problems with your friends. You can write it, get it off your chest. People say, hey, I love that song, but you still have to deal with reality. And that's what I realized. Like I was going through a lot of things and I was writing about it, but I wasn't solving any problems. And on one end, me being a very just introverted person, you know, a lot of people can't tell that because, you know, just being in the music industry, you're just forced to be able to just talk and communicate with things with people. And right. a lot of people just didn't realize that. So I'd have to go out and pretend to be happy about all these things. But when I got away from it, like I would just shut down. And my man, Seven the Panther, could tell you that, too. Like uh, he used to do a lot of shows with me and we used to rock, you know, go out and rock a show and kill it. And immediately I'd want to leave. And people would think it was because of, oh, he's trying to be big headed or, you know, just a diva. It wasn't. It was just like I, you know. <laughs> Being an introvert, sometimes you you kind of the more you're around people, you just start to hate people, you know. So right, right. things where I was just dealing with that, and you know, and I couldn't really process, and I, I I couldn't understand like this is what I've always wanted, and you know, I remember um a, a lyric from Joe Button. He was like, I I got a deal, but couldn't deal with it. It's like one of those things where this is what I've always wanted, and then you get to it and you realize like. <laughs> The Wizard of Oz is like, oh, this is bullshit. This, you're not a real wizard. This is this is what I spent my life, you know, chasing after. You know. Well, do you think? I mean, back then, it doesn't sound like it was talked, spoken. You know, wasn't spoken about much um, in the hip hop community. But you know, you do talk about. You mentioned Joe Budden, but you also like, you know, Joel Ortiz and uh, you know, Royce the Five Nine. Right, a lot of them are now more speaking out about dealing with alcoholism and and depression. Um, do you do you think it's actually now it's or even Faramont, right? It does a whole album called PTSD. Um are you do do you, are you seeing there's more of a conversation to be had within the hip hop community about mental health or mental health awareness, or is it really something that you're not really supposed to talk about as much? No, I, I see it more. I see more people talking about it now. I just don't know if people truly take it serious because a lot of people say that they're depressed and people that don't People that have never been depressed don't really understand. It's just all it's just one of those things. And for me, you know, my depression and just being able to suppress it came from being a black man. And, mm -hmm. you know, and not just society, but as you know, as my family. A lot of times my family thought if you were upset or depressed, you could just go to church. You know, my grandfather was a, a preacher. 
you know, my mother's siblings, at least six of them are, are pastors or ministers. So it's just one of those things that people think that you can just pray away and these problems will just go away and things like that. So that really caused a, a major issue for me was just suppressing it. And, you know, just by the, you know, by the grace of God and, and, and my wife telling me, look, if there's things on your chest, you need to just you need to say it. Don't keep it bottled up and things like that. Um, Cause I had to do it for so long, but I do, I appreciate people in hip hop that really, you know, speak about it now and address it. I just, I don't know if people take it as serious. They don't take it serious until somebody actually commits suicide and then people stop for a second and then they understand it. But, you know, it's a discussion that, you know, that more people should have. So what brought you, you know, 2012, you, you know, you took, you left and then you came back. What, what brought you back and when did you know it was okay, you know, mentally for you to, to kind of return to the, you know, return to the mic or to start writing? Right. For me, when I took those years off, um, first thing I did, I went and got a job because one thing I do know is that, um, when you go get a job and people don't know that you're a musician or artist, they're going to treat you the way that they see you like there, there's no bias or anything like that. They're going to treat you either the best or they're going to treat you the worst. And for me, that was humbling for me because I felt like I finally got to live a little bit because I had been chasing this rap dream since I was nine years old, you know? So now I had to put all this aside, go back to work. Um, I used to come home every day and I remember the first six months of it. I was like, what do regular people do? <laughs> like I used to come home every day and write a song or work on some music. But now I used to come home every day and, you know, it's, there's nothing to do. Now I had to deal with all the problems. That's where the healing, that's where the healing began for me was. All right. Now you're coming home every day. Uh, you know, if your children are getting on your nerves, you can't be like, all right, well, I'm going to go on tour for six months. I <laughs> take care yeah, of right. or marital <laughs> problems and things like that. But like, look, I'm paying the bills. I'm going on tour. Now, like, I, you know, there was no tours, there were no shows, there were no getaways. I had to face reality head on. And during that time, I got to repair a lot of friendships and relationships and things like that. And once I got to that point, that's when I realized, you know, I I found some happiness. And then I started sitting around and, you know, felt like, hey, I got an idea in my head. And one thing starts and, you know, I had friends and I'll give credit to people like Marco Polo and. Mm, and, and, you know, and a lot of other people, too, that they never lost touch with me when I left the music industry. They didn't talk about music a lot. They would really just honestly just check on me. But, you know, they would always uh, they would always just send me little things like, hey, check this out. Can I get your opinion on this? You know, even though I wasn't actively doing music, um, you know, they they would still look out for me. The one thing that brought me back was (laughs) this is crazy enough was I was just checking my email one day. And I got an email from Stoop of Jedi Mind Tricks. And if anybody knows Stoop, he's never online. He doesn't keep up with <laughs> with updates or anything. Stoop emailed me and was like, hey, man, uh, this is, I, it literally said, this is Stoop from Jedi Mind Tricks. I don't know if you know me, but I'd be interested in doing a project with you. And I'm like, I'm like first of all, I'm thinking this is a joke because I was like, does Stoop even have email? Like, I, right, I, yeah. I was he hacked with him and had zero <laughs> contact with him before. So now he's reaching out, but he had no idea that I had left the music industry and I had always wanted to work with Stoop, but I didn't have the heart to tell him, look, man, I don't care about music. So he would send me, you know, just loops of things and 
of songs and I would just start to write to them and things like that. And as that process was taking place, I began just wanted to write more solo stuff because the stuff I was doing with Stoop, I was like, yeah, it's cool, but it's not really superstition to me. So I started just working on, uh, I think the return project was the Blackboard. And that's how it came about. Man. Was, um, was the the that that process with uh, with getting you know emailed beats I guess and you writing was that something new to you or was that uh, a process that you've always always done you know you're you're you've done you know not just this go in studio write to beats but is that was that a new was that a kind of a new process for you or no no it wasn't a new process at all because even back um, if you go back to 2004 with the deadline like that was produced by M phases from Australia. Dela from France, Krupp from Germany, Ilmine from New Jersey. So they would literally send me CDs of just beats, like data CDs, because back then you couldn't really, you know, it'd take forever to to download a, a wave file back then, right. you, especially on yeah. America Online or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. So <laughs> I would literally get these packages and CDs of tracked out beats from M phases and they would already just be tracked out. I've never heard the beat or anything. I just take it straight to the studio, pull it up right to it and record it and things like that. So the whole process of emailing beats, like I was more comfortable with that. I think I'm more comfortable with that now than I am with actually being in the studio with, with people because early in my career, I used to be just going to the studio and vibe out. But, you know, just like I said, me as an introvert and I've been recording myself for probably 10 years or more now. So it's just like me being in a studio with a bunch of guys doesn't inspire me at all, man. All right, so 2013, the Blackboard comes out, but then in 2015, uh, you dropped the Gold Standard, right? And you, you've talked about the Gold Standard interviews and said that how this was like you said, well, it's the one, it's the one I can kind of boast and be proud of for a lot of years. A lot of things weren't working out the way I wanted them to, but with Gold Standard, is one of those records where everything came together. Yes. Um, how did this project for you come together? And then when did you know that was there a moment, I guess, in studio or maybe even a moment of you writing a track that you knew this was coming together the way you wanted it to come together? Um, for Gold Standard, to me, the the moment that I met Praise, which is, you know, my my in-house producer, uh, we're also in a group called Speaker Bullies. Um, I had heard about praise through a brother named proverb who passed away some years ago and proverb was like look i know you got all these different producers but there's this one guy that i know you'll love if you're here and you know i'll just kind of yeah 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 just send me a link or whatever so he sent it to me i didn't check it that day a couple days later i listened to it and was like what the hell (laughs) like this dude is amazing (laughs) so i reached out to praise we formed a great friendship and a bond and we just started just knocking out songs. He would send me beats. Literally, literally everything that he sent me was amazing. And I would just go in and start recording to it. And so, you know, that was a gold standard intro, Know My Worth, Black Bodies and things like that, man. This was like, to me, one of the easiest projects that I've ever had to record. I didn't have labels, you know, trying to tell me, you know, what to record. I didn't have outside influence. Like the gold standard to me was the one album that I would say I truly wanted to make. And it turned out the way that I wanted it from beginning to end. And I can't say that 
about a lot of projects. You know what I mean? I've been dreaming in multicolor, living in black and white. These cowards want you to battle them, try to render you powerless, but don't ever allow them to tell you what your value is. This time I run the show, cause there was moments my talent was poorly undersold. Fuck being humble, bro, when I spun the globe. Traveled to wonderful countries and done a hundred shows. Collected money old, now I'm a smart guy. You actually mentioned I know, know My Worth featuring Boog Brown. Uh, and, and I, you know, I asked you about the underrated title, and then, of course, fast forward and listen to this track and you're like oh yeah no he, he he's he's saying you know he's ultimately saying like listen you you should get how much you deserve to be paid not what people think you should be paid right um and you know and then and and you think about the music industry and you you know you've mentioned it as well but it's just like you seem like i feel like record execs will try to underpay you as much as they can <laughs> right and, and you know and, and a, a great example of that and i'll never forget uh, I toured Europe with um, Just Allah from Jedi Mind Tricks and Chief Kamachi at that time. We did a bunch of shows. I went out headlined, well, co-headlined and did all these crazy shows. And then I had a show booked in North Carolina about a week later after my tour. And that show was with Jedi Mind Tricks. So <laughs> after co-headlining a whole tour in Europe, I came back home. And the promoter's like, yeah, you know, you'll be f- performing at 830. I'm like, what time's the doors open? He's like eight o'clock. <laughs> like, <what? Wow. laughs> There's literally 20 people in there. I was backstage talking to uh, Jan, who's, uh, you know, Jedi Montrix manager and Vinny Paz. And they're like, why are you going out there to perform right now? I'm like, look, this is the local treatment that you get. Like you can be, you know, people can love you across the world. But now here I am getting the 830 treatment, getting 75% less of the fee that I got when I was in Europe. And it was just like, things like that is like, look, you know, I know my worth, man. <laughs> so was there, a, was there ever a time for you though, that, um, I guess, quote unquote, compromising was like, there was, there would be, there would have been a long-term benefit to kind of maybe, uh, compromising uh, your worth, I guess, for a show, or is it? Is there ever a time you should do that, uh, especially in the music industry, or do you think it's like kind of those moments where once you you compromise, then people see that and will take as much, you know, like, well, you you know, you agreed to this much before, why not, you know? Right. Um, it's a it's a very slippery slope. Um, you know, there are times that I'll go out and, and I'll do a show for damn near nothing if it's a a promoter that I know and I know he's trying to set something up or get started or it's some friends and they're trying to do a show or if it's a charity or, or something like that. But um, I would say back in my you know local scene of Charlotte, I ended up having uh, it's crazy. Like this one uh, promoter had reached out to me and this was around the time of chain letters and mm-hmm. he wanted me to do a show for, I think it had to be like a hundred dollars. And he wanted a 45 minute to an hour set. And I was like, dude, I'm not doing that. That's that's crazy. That's crazy. And we got into it and he was like, you know, your wife would think you were crazy if you didn't take this this, uh, you know, hundred dollars or whatever it was. But one, of, it's one of those things where if I take a hundred dollars for a show, even if I'm looking out, even if I'm twice as popular later on, he's just going to offer me two hundred dollars. So, I mean, right. you know, you just have to be careful for that, man. So. Uh, the record uh, on on Gold Standard, uh, Black Bodies. Uh, you know, you listen to it and you in 2015 when you wrote it, but then you listen to it today and it's still relevant to what's going on today. Um, what is? I mean, what does that mean for you as an artist to have 
I think a record like this that's still relevant today but then also what does it mean for you as a person to kind of have a record that is you know that still speaks volumes to what's going on today right yeah sadly that record is still relevant um you know me and praise have conversations about that as well he produced that track um it was i wrote that when things were just starting to boil over and there was a lot of things that i wanted to say and i noticed a lot of people had been posting things and and saying different things but for the most part at that time, I didn't feel like a lot of people were truly addressing it or speaking about it the way that I was, you know? So I felt like I needed to, to give it, speak about it from a superstition perspective. And, um, I did that. I recorded that song right before I went on a tour with blueprint, like a huge 60 city tour. And, you know, I would perform it at certain cities and I would just see the looks that I would get. I mean, you can't be out in <laughs> Nebraska performing a song like this. <laughs> you know, like the song went over in D.C. and different places like that. But when you get in these other, you know, smaller uh, markets, people are looking at you like, you you know, you're crazy. And I remember the day that I, I released that video, you know, me and my manager, we did an email blast. And I remember I've never got so many hateful responses and unsubscribes just from that one particular song. But at that time, you know, people immediately dismissed it as, you know, being just anti-police or whatever the situation was. But for me, it had to be something that had to be said. And, and it goes back to me being that little boy watching the Klan marching in his small town. You know, it's just a lot of things that I've been holding in for years, man. And, and I feel my perspective was, was a little bit different. So. They call us hypocrites cause we don't protest when niggas kill other niggas for change. I'd explain to you with this plain answer. What would a street dude and boys in blue ever be held to the same standard? I pled my case but felt the court was ignoring me. Question, when was the U.S. the moral authority? Ask the Native Americans, ask the slaves that were whipped to their bloody. And these are, I mean, these are people that are unsubscribing. These are presumably fans of yours. Yes, definitely. And, and one thing I had to, you know, I have to remind myself and I tell people that hip hop is a music of, of rebellious kids sometimes, you know, and a lot of times you'll have um, kids of other ethnicities that, you know, sometimes they're drawn to hip hop because it's different from the environment that they grew up in They're You know, it's a lot different from, you know, just their, their upbringing. They can live vicariously through rappers. That's why a lot of times they're into the most gangster, the most thugged out artists possible. But at the same time, you still have to realize that, of course, not all, but there are some who are the children of bigots and racists and things like that. So as much as we can be in one place and enjoy hip hop, there's a time where that music stops and they still have the beliefs <laughs> and they still have what's embedded in them from their parents. So you'll see that a lot of times where, you know, they want the black entertainment. But when it comes to the black pain, they're just like. I don't want to hear that shit, you know? Right, right. Um, hey, and you see that a lot now with like more uh, more people or more, more black people speaking up who are, who are in positions of power mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, celebrity status. 
uh, you see the the pushback on that as well, right? You see fans being upset, like LeBron James is actually saying something, and people are pissed off at him. They just want him to, you know, sh- shut up and play basketball, right? Right. And, um, and my thing, when people say that, they say, "Well, shut up and make music, or shut up and, uh, you know, shut up and dribble." It's like, well, how about you shut up and bag groceries or whatever your your day? Right, right. It's like, you know, as a as a citizen, as you know, we have as much right as anybody to, to speak on it. You know, I think a lot of people don't like it because we have an actual platform with people who actually listen to us. So, do you see? Do you feel? I mean, conversations you've had with fellow artists, or even what you're saying, do you feel that more artists are now speaking out against uh, what's going on, but also will speak out within their music as well? Yeah, I think for the most part, a lot of artists will tweet about it and post about it and be angry about it. Um, At the end of the day, me creating Black Bodies or another artist creating a song about it, it raises awareness, but it doesn't solve the problem. And I'm a firm believer in if there's going to be a change in the community, we shouldn't look to artists, you know. I remember Farrakhan mentioning that. I remember Dick Gregory talking about it a lot of times, too, was like, you know, community leaders are are chosen. You know, it's not I can't just be a community leader now because I have a platform and I have 500,000 followers. And all of a sudden now I'm I'm just I'm taking over now as the community leader. No, there's people out in the streets right now doing the actual work. And that's what I would say. We can bring awareness to it, but you've got to follow the community leaders to get the message and people that have solutions. A lot of times people they'll they'll express their gripes and you know their problems but they don't offer any solutions i I truly believe that you know we should follow the people that have the solutions you've kind of talked about music as your influence and you've also talked about you know the power of artists that you've had but uh i think a very simple and quote-unquote simple but powerful lyric comes off of uh the track sacrifice off this sacrifice ep uh where you spit and give credit to your mom and you say she just she just she just didn't give me good luck she gave me jewels right, right. Uh, and i was wondering uh, what were those jewels those that big the biggest lessons your mom taught you not just about music if she you know i don't know if she had that much of an influence on your art but also i mean just as a person in terms of how you treat yourself but also treat others right um yeah as far as music my mom wasn't I can't even remember a day my mom was actually singing a song, <laughs> like unless it was gospel. But uh, a lot of the life jewels that my mom gave me, for one, is just because my mom was also, uh, you know, she was a teenage mother and she had me at the age of 17 and she had a basketball scholarship and she could have went to a better college, but she'd had a child in high school. So she ended up getting a basketball scholarship, going to college. And I remember seeing her, you know, just, you know, going to college. I was super young back then. But I remember her getting injured and coming home and she tore like one MCL. And then the next season she tore an MCL and then she had to come home for good because, you know, she no longer had a scholarship. And so I watched my mom come home and have to start all the way over. I watched her work at I think it was Kentucky Fried Chicken back then and then just work her way up. So all these phases in life, we went from living with my grandmother to getting a trailer and then to an apartment, then to a smaller house, then to a bigger house. So I watched my mom constantly, constantly just upgrade her life and my life as well. And that's one thing that I learned from her was that no matter what, even if it's music or whatever it is, you have to take care of your family. You have to keep improving your life. 
And that's one thing that I realized is like, look, I can do music before it was I had to do music or I had to work. You know, that was the mentality that was embedded into me. And it's and it's embedded into a lot of artists. They feel like if you're working a job, you're not serious about your craft, which I can go and tell you that's BS. You can do both because the majority of time when I was self-employed and just doing music, I played video games all day and I worked on music <laughs> for like two hours a day. So, I mean, those are life jewels that my mom gave me. And also she taught me about credit and it goes back to the Williams. When I wrote that song, the Williams, I can't even remember what my credit score it was probably horrible. And then now I'm looking at an 800 credit score. So that just tells you like just life jewels that people give you on how to improve your life. Like, and I release less music than I ever have, but now I'm more financially stable than I've ever been. And it's because I was grinding and I was hustling, but I wasn't doing it the right way. And I was looking into other labels and things like that. Now, when I started kind of just taking control of my own, you know, my, my, my catalog, because I own 99.9% of my masters with the exception of the Williams and I started making smarter business decisions and just make started making smarter life decisions, man. So those are a lot of the jewels that I got from it. Uh, and the Sacrifice EP, it leaves us with the track uh, Sunday Soon uh, featuring Blueprint, who you know you mentioned you went on tour with. Uh, can you talk about what Blueprint kind of brings to this track that makes them kind of the perfect fit for it? But then also, why would you, why, why leave us with this track for this EP? Right. Um, I think at that time when me and Blueprint, you know, we talk a lot, you know, after we did that tour together, man, we became really just close friends and I respected him a lot just as a human being, as a man. So we consult with each other a lot, whether it's on just life, music, uh, we'll send unreleased projects to each other and get opinions and things like that. But we were talking one day and I think it was um, one of the members of Anacon had passed away and Prior to that, I think um, DJ Merlin, who was one of my early producers and close friends back in my, um, you know, one of my my crews from back in North Carolina, you know, he had committed suicide and it just. It was almost like, man, look how, you know, how technically young we are, but we're constantly just looking at just death. We don't even have time to digest it. And even now, look, look at just covid and coronavirus like we just. People pass away so quick that we don't even have time to process it. And then, you know, Proverb passed away and a, a lot of people close to me just passed away. And it was like, look, I'm tired of just always. It feels like my social media uh, account is becoming an obituary, like posting about, you know, rest in peace, the pumpkin head and all these different people. So me and Blueprint was talking about that. And I was like, you know what? I got an idea. I think we should put this into a song. And, I, you know, I, I made the beat. And sent over the, um, you know, sent over my verse to it. Blueprint laid a hook on it and then a verse. And man, it was like, I felt like w- with him, I can have these serious discussions. So I felt like he was perfect for the track. I pray God gives me better understanding despite the many passings that seem so random. To my family, I pray that I never leave you prematurely in your time of need. If I do know I had a great ride, as short as it was, I still cherish the time. You mentioned Pumpkinhead, and I, you know, I never got to interview him, and obviously he, he, he died too soon, uh, left us too soon. But you listen to that album, and it's incredible. <laughs> like, there's no track that you want to skip from it. Uh, and then you also listen to his voice, and his voice, not just 
lyrically he's great but his his voice is that voice that you once you hear his voice you don't have you know you don't have to say who is this you know exactly who it is um what was it you've worked with him what was it what what did he kind of bring to that table as not just a friend but also as a fellow mc that um that really stood out to you man that brother man and it's crazy because i just had an interview for uh, someone's working on a book about Pumpkinhead and his in one of his albums and they were shocked to find out that I met Pumpkinhead back in 97 98 when I wasn't even superstition and I was going by blackmail this was the name that I had before I signed that deal with Loki Records and uh I was running with a crew called the Nobodies back then and they had a manager who would go to New York and he would hang out with, at making records and back then, making records had, you know, Natural Resource, uh, Pumpkinhead, Bad Seed. And he took me along for a trip. And the first time I went there, I met, you know, What What, who was Jean Grey. I met Bad Seed. I met, um, I think, DCQ, who was Most Def's brother. And I met Pumpkinhead. And I remember sitting in the studio with uh, Pumpkinhead and, and Bad Seed and just playing songs. And they were playing songs. And they were like, you rap? And I'm like, yeah. And so they threw on a beat and we just we just started just rhyming and Pumpkinhead like he loved it so much. He had a show later that night at the Lyricist Lounge and one of the members, um, you know, one of the people that was on the Dynamic MCs remix couldn't make it. He was like, yo, I just need you to come in and just spit like eight bars on it. And I'm like at the Lyricist Lounge. He's like, yeah, this is the first day that he's ever met me. And we became close after that. Every time I had a trip to New York, it was almost like I'd always either we'd link up intentionally or he'd just be out. And then we just we started doing shows together and things like that. You know, just, you know, I met his wife. I mean, well, he met my wife. I was hanging out with him at Scribble Jam. The craziest thing I could tell you, man, and it's it's I think back to it now. The last Scribble Jam there was there was an MC battle going on and the three guest judges for the MC battle was me, Pumpkinhead and Idea. And so I think about that Idea is gone, Pumpkinhead's gone, man. It's right. it's it's crazy, man. But as far as PH man, he's one, he was one of the just most genuine humble dudes. His voice was unmistakable whenever you heard uh Pumpkinhead on a song, man. It just you knew who it was, man. And then you had Orange Moon over Brooklyn. I was cool with Marco Polo at that time, who I had um I had heard of because he had sent me a beat tape and the beat tape caught my ear because Pumpkinhead did all the drops for it. Like Marco Polo on the beat, it was always Pumpkinhead. So I was like, yo, that's my homie every time I listen to these beats. So when they did a project together, it was only right. You know, Marco reached out, PH reached out. And I was like, yo, you know what? I got you. And, you know, it's crazy because Wordsworth is on that song now. And me and Wordsworth right now currently are working on a project together. So it's crazy how it all comes 360, man. But I can't say anything bad about PH, man. I miss that brother so much. I found out he had passed away while I was on tour with um, Blueprint. And we had just stopped in Orlando and did a show, woke up the next day. And Mad Eels from Grind Time came over and he was like, hey, man, y'all heard about PH? I'm like, no, you know, what's going on? He was like, he passed away and just the room just froze, man. I was, I was in shock. I started trying to text our mutual friends to find out. And I guess they didn't know yet. So now I've already told other people that he's passed away. Cause I'm trying to confirm that he's passed away. And 
man, it was it was just a somber. It was just somber. I just remember the next few days just kind of just just moping around, man. And, you know, like rest in peace to to PH, man. Um, shout out to uh, Blitzkrieg, too. Um, he he posts a lot of uh, of just stuff about PH, man. It just takes me back, man. So, but yeah, man, salute to that, brother. Even though time flies, I'm 28 in years. That's about 10,000 and 2,200 months. Spitting heat for 10 years and haven't been signed once. How I'm supposed to blow up when independent labels front? Don't pay up. Don't promote your record label sucks. You got MCs out there that deserve to get put on. So for them, I'm gonna rock, rock, rock on. Yeah. Rock, rock, rock on. And the plane. Uh, you've you've done a lot in your career and you've you know done a lot for yourself as well you made you know just not just art changes artistic changes but personal life changes um but if you were to kind of look at everything you've done and then kind of take a lyric that you've or you know you've written and um it either blows you away to this day that you're like holy crap i can't believe i wrote that or kind of sum, sums up kind of what you how you feel you are now uh is there that one lyric that you've written that you kind of shows that no, i don't think it would be a lyric it would probably it would be sacrifice the project sacrifice is exactly where my life is now i rap probably 10 percent of the time like my I, you know i have a day job i'm a project manager for an engineering company that's a fortune 500 company so i when I come home, I work on some music or, you know, and, and whenever I have time, I kind of make music at, at my own, you know, at my own pace now, you know, so sacrifice. I think I spoke out a lot about that. I had a lyric that says, um, you know, they still offer me tours. I'd rather be at home. That's a place that's far from divorce. So, you know, that's my life right now. You know, I, I've improved my life and, you know, God is good, man. Family's good. And I'm just, I'm just, man, I'm just blessed to be here, bro. So, uh, so you know, you mentioned uh, you're 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 doing a project with Wordsworth and and in a book as well. So, can you? Is there anything you give us detail about not just the book, but also this project that you're doing? Yeah, well, the project that I have with Wordsworth, um, he had hit me up around the beginning of the year. Um, I had because I'd started back doing a lot of production and things like that. He had hit me up uh, just about beats and things. It was like, hey, let's do some songs. So I started sending him beats, and you know, my intention was just to send him beats that he could rap over, but he wanted me to be a part of it and actually, you know, rhyme on them. And Wordsworth turnaround time is super quick and mine is super quick. So I'd make a meet, I make a beat, send it to Wordsworth. He'd record a verse the same day. And since I'm quick, I'd record a verse the same day. And so, and within a month's time, we like, dude, we've done like a half an album already. So, um, you know, and we just, we like the chemistry and he's a good brother and he also, you know, he he's a, a full time teacher as well. So we relate a lot on that level as well, too, man. And we discuss just, man, if if we didn't have uh, just day jobs or nine to fives right now, like imagine what our life would be trying to finesse and, and make our way through this pandemic that we have going on. So um, our project right now is still untitled. We probably got about seven or eight songs. Um, man, we got some some guests when people see who we have on it as well. I know my fans for one, like one of the, the artists we have is one of my all time favorite artists that I've always wanted to do a song with. And I'm not going to say who, but he's pretty close with Wordsworth. So um, he's on that project, um, man. As far as, uh, you know, I got the Speaker Bullies project with Praise that's going to probably drop before that one. Um, Speaker Bullies is just the the concept behind it is pretty much, you know, praising myself. We're we're 
calm married guys would go to work every day. But speaker bullies is like what happens when two married guys get bored with their life being good. They just start <laughs> they just start wilding out and just doing all type of crazy things. So it's if it, if I could call it fantasy rap, that's what it would be. But it's a lot of things that I think a lot of people want to say that are probably afraid to say it. So we got that project coming out. It's super aggressive. It's hard beats, hard drums. You know, we call it heavy bars, you know, heavy drums, heavy bars. So I have that project as well, too. Um, as far as the book, I'm still early on that. Um, I'm still trying to just fill it out. This is my first time writing. I read a lot, but this is my first time really writing. And I, I felt like I was almost turning into an autobiography and that's not my intention for it. So but uh, I plan on finishing that that up before the end of the year. So. Uh, he's, uh, I know that's the same here is superstition. Uh, man, it's been great and honored to actually have you on the library of 10 minutes ago. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to, to do this interview. Thank you, man. It's, it's been great talking to you, man. I feel like one of the homies, man. We got to stay in touch, man. <laughs> Put the music on hold and got back to life. Some things just ain't worth the sacrifice. Sacrifice. You gotta have a different motive when you older than niggas. You gotta know when to fold them and gotta know when to pivot. We too old to be posing if we ain't rolling the riches. I'm seeing brothers get evicted, won't let go of the business. A sad state of affairs. How they come to date to shut down hope. But bill collectors ain't impressed with your less brown quotes. I need a future with some benefits. I don't need no Gucci though with super snow degenerate. Some of you got the hunger, bro. Salute to those who win with it. I'm on a different mission now. I don't fuck with it if it ain't bucket list or written down. So much fake shit, you be crazy to get involved. You wanna make it and you just too lazy to get a job. I'm busy raising these babies, they told me the game missed me. I refuse to be that lame chasing fame in his 50s. I alter my course, I ain't starving no more. Lost a couple supporters, that's just part for the cause. I'm still raw before, they still offer me tours. I'd rather be at home, that's a place that's far from divorce. My son is amazing, daughter is academically gifted. Used to tour so much my own home, I felt like I was visiting. Traveling frequently sounds amazing until you living it, but the problems that came with it, I never envisioned it. Now some of you would die to just begin to drive a seat and get that type of attention. I started missing privacy. Family, something that I happen to cherish. And I don't know too many rappers that don't happily marry. Don't be distracted by appearance. Yeah, we clearly got some talent. My music mixed with marriage, that's some hard shit to balance. Bro, speaking real life, there ain't no punchlines or metaphors. Avatar, I'm headed for an 800 credit score. Georgia resident, another step closer than I ever been. While most of y'all was Bitching about the president, I up the tax bracket. I put my lady to school. I can't draft for a living. Consider that paying dues. So musical, not listen. My mama ain't raise a fool. She ain't just give me these good looks, homie. She gave me jewels. I accomplished everything I dreamed of when I started. I'm proud of all the projects I created as an artist. I never had to cringe at it like this shit is nonsense. I never saw my soul while reaching all of my goals. So my mission's accomplished. Success so many nights. Has changed so much since you first got into music. 
and yet you're still here, singing, writing, and recording, and outlasting so many that came after you. How do you feel young artists should approach commercial music making if they want to experience just a teensy bit of success and longevity that you have enjoyed? Well, the reason that's kind of a tough question for me to deal with is because I had free reign when I was with the company right I was with. That's right. None of them told me what to do or how to do it or when to do it. Newsflash, you can lose weight like a celebrity without being a celebrity. New Glucotrim from GNC delivers serious results with a proven formula that features ingredients derived from nature, like berberine. And the best part? You don't need a crazy expensive prescription. Glucotrim works with your body to support healthy blood sugar and protect lean muscle mass, unlike other products out there. And did I mention it's caffeine-free? So if you want real results, get on that celebrity weight loss level with New Glucotrim. Get it at GNC. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.